You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. I begin today's episode with a little quote from Jim Fowler. The continued existence of wildlife and wilderness is important to the quality of life of humans. And today is episode number 249. My guest today is Kristen Combs, the executive director of Wyoming Wildlife Advocates. Born and raised in suburbia of the Northeast, Kristen always knew working with nature or animals was in her deck of cards. She just loved being outdoors. After a little honeymoon road trip, Kristen and her husband found their home, which is what we call Jackson Hole, as do so many other people. And following her calling, just think about working in an industry and with an organization that you say, hey, this is my calling. This is what I was meant to do. Kristen is fulfilling her life's mission each day through advocation and education and much, much more. Jackson Hole is full of wildlife. We maybe not as much as it was maybe 40, 50 years ago and way back even longer than that. But as we humans find ways to live in the native habitat of so many wildlife species, Kristen and her crew help us humans learn how to be responsible and have less of an impact on some of these very sensitive wildlife environments. Kristen, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. It is wonderful to have some time to speak with you. You have a lovely background there. You're outside while you're speaking to me. Yeah, you may hear some uh, bird sounds. <laughs> we have a lot of fledglings around right now. <laughs> Well, now is the season. It seems as though this year has been quite a wet and cold spring, now summer. So it's nice that the birds are out singing. I'm very much appreciating it. Yeah, me too. It feels like we're finally getting into December. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll get a, at least a few weeks of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably going to be over before we know it. <laughs> That's right. I mean, the rest of the country, they are just being cooked i mean 100 plus degrees for you know quite some time now and i don't think it's hit 80 degrees here yet i know it's really crazy i mean we haven't even had that many days like in the 70s even so it's mm -hmm. yeah it's really weird to like hear about other places that are on fire or you know just yeah having all these hot temperatures and then like here we are just you know nice and comfortable yeah <laughs> chilly even. and yeah and and last week my family and I, we went and hiked out at Munger Mountain and you could see the pollen blowing. I asked my wife, I was like, is it hazy in here? And she said, yeah, it's like, I think it's the pollen. And I think it was. And then we got it to the top of the Munger and you could see the wind and you could see some spots where the pollen was just floating through the sky to where other places they've all, they're done with pollination season. Yeah. I think we still got a little bit ahead of us, unfortunately. Yeah, we do. We do. Well, Kristen, tell me, where were you born and 
raised and how did you land here in Jackson and how long have you been here in Jackson Hole? Um, yeah, I am a Midwesterner from Ohio, Dayton area, and grew up there, you know, very much suburbia uh, in, a, in a small suburb outside of Dayton. And after, you know, I always knew that I wanted to do something with animals or nature, the outdoors. I mean, I grew up camping and uh, hiking and just being outside and enjoying flowers and birds and everything else. And so I knew that at some point I was going to get to where I would be doing some kind of job outside, but I didn't know what that was. And I've always loved animals. So actually my husband and I, we kind of did a, you know, a cross country trip for our honeymoon and maybe out here to Yellowstone uh, in Jackson, spent some time, you know, a couple of weeks here um, driving across the country and just getting to know more about what the West was like. And we just fell in love. I mean, it just felt like home. We, we've, you know, spent time vacationing in Montana and Colorado and Utah and other places. And it just, there was something about Jackson that was special that we just kept coming back to. And I think one of the main things about it is, is that the wildlife is unparalleled here. And that's in once I knew there was a place where there was so much wildlife and you could just see it on a daily basis. I was, I felt like, you know, we were just like, we got to live here. We, this is, this is where we belong. So um, yeah, we, that was back in 2004 that we just took the leap and we're kind of the first of our family to move away from Ohio and certainly the first of our friends to move out this way. And yeah, uh, the rest is history. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you guys made it out here and, and found this amazing place. And I think it, I like what you said. The wildlife is just unparalleled here. And I've recently been reading a book about a um, former hunting guide and his description. And this is, he was a guide back in the seventies. And he was saying that there was a lot more wildlife back then than compared to now. However, even though there was more wildlife then, there was some wildlife that didn't really exist uh, mm -hmm. back then compared to now as as well. Certainly, yeah. I mean, it's it's something to think about. You know, we've gotten sort of to a place as humanity that we just don't expect to see wildlife and there isn't as much wildlife around. And, you know, knowing that here in Jackson is one of the best places to view wildlife but you're right like you know certainly in the 70s there weren't very many grizzly bears and there were no you know wolves here and and the, a lot of wildlife yeah you just couldn't see i mean i'm thankful to you know john d rockefeller for visiting this place and trying to set aside this land and 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 wildlife too and so you know like that's the wildlife we have today is that stuff that was protected back then so yeah, I agree. It's uh, there was probably a lot more here at one time, but it is one of the like only places in the United States where you can see, you know, a full suite of predator and prey that were here prehistorically and that are still here. What are just so people listening in can have an understanding how you mentioned that they were probably here prehistoric. What are some of those animals that you're referencing to? Yeah, like, you know, bison, uh, certainly. I mean, that's something that there used to be 60 million bison across the United States. And now there's just a small herd. I mean, certainly there's reintroduction efforts going on other places. Bison, I think one of the most intriguing animals around here are pronghorn. 
because they are a true like North American species that evolved and you know made their home here in North America and they've been here for yeah millions of years and have survived all of these changes that you know have happened both with the ice age and warming and cooling temperatures and they just have the drive to survive it seems like um and then yeah you know all the big things like grizzly bears and wolves and mountain lions and elk and deer i mean it's really it's really amazing like what you can see in just a day of wildlife Mm -hmm. watching around here and and we also have some wildlife in our ecosystem that you would probably most likely never see as well unless you are a frequent visitor to wilderness areas one of those would be the wolverine sure yeah i mean that's something that probably most people are never going to see in their lifetime i was lucky enough to see one on teton pass one day literally just a fleeting view of it i only saw it for like you know 10 seconds maybe and i probably never see one again in my life so Uh (laughs) i've considered myself very blessed to have seen one yeah i mean wolverines or or lynx as well you know those are a very endangered animal that most people will never see unless you're up in like northern parts of Canada and even things like pikas, you know, those aren't something that people really see that frequently either. You kind of got to go to where they are in order to see them. What is a pika? A pika is I know a lot of people just don't even know what it is. Um, It's it's in the rag, rabbit family. Actually, it's a lagomorph and it doesn't have a tail. It's a small mammal that lives in the alpine talus slopes. So usually up in high altitude environments, they, they don't hibernate. They actually collect like hay stores. So they, they spend like the whole summer foraging and clipping plants and storing those and drying them. And then they live off of that throughout the winter time. And most, most rabbit species do eat their feces. Like that's a way that they can reprocess the food that they've already eaten to get more nutrients out of it. And they also get some, you know, water out of that as well. So, uh, yeah, they're they're incredibly cute, and they are really quite fearsome for being such a small little thing. It's they're about the size, like a little bit smaller than a chinchilla, um, and they're kind of like the North American counterparts to chinchillas, I would say. Yeah, they're they're really cute animals, and I love seeing them. A great place to see them is out on at the Grovant Slide in the in the Talus. That's there where on the other side of the slide where you can just pull right up along the Grovant Road there, there's mm-hmm. pikas that live in there. And you kind of got to like sit for a minute and and wait. And then you'll hear they have this little alarm call when there's something in their environment. It's kind of like this little meh. And yeah. once you hear that, then you know they're around. So you just got to go. Then at that point, you just got to wait and, and see. And they'll, they'll pop out for sure. <laughs> they are cute animals. And it's great seeing them when you make it out on the trail and get up high and uh, do some hiking mm-hmm. we'll see those animals and when you moved out here did you start working for the company that you're with now no i feel like my path has been winding uh to get me to where i'm at today i originally worked at you know just kind of some odd and end jobs i had a environmental science degree with a minor in biology and uh you know knew i wanted to do something outside but really didn't know what what that would look like um so I spent a summer working as a uh, like seasonal naturalist for the Forest Service, and that was really fun. I got to travel around to area dude ranches and lead horseback rides and, you know, kind of be the naturalist for the area. 
I'm, I remember like the minute we moved here, I just went to the bookstore and just bought like as many books as I could about flowers and plants and animals. And I just wanted to know everything about, cause this was, you know, it's so many things here are so different from where I grew up in the hardwoods of, you know, in the Eastern U S. And so I wanted to know like everything about everything. And I'm kind of an amateur botanist. I have spent a lot of time working at uh, plant nurseries and I, I just really love plants. I, I don't know why I have such a passion for them, but I do. And I, I was really excited to see how like a lot of the plants out here are just the wild derivatives of the things that we have domesticated and, you know, use for our gardens. So like geranium, for example, is, you know, there's, we have sticky geranium out here that grows and is beautiful. And then that's something that has been domesticated to, you know, we have grown it bigger and, and more beautiful and more colors. But um, yeah, I find it intriguing that there's all of these amazing I mean, just incredible plants out there that you see, especially in a year like this, when we have such a wet spring. I mean, the wildflowers right now are just so beautiful. And so, yeah, it's been a, a season working as a naturalist and saw some amazing places. I don't know if anyone's ever been out to like the Flat Creek Ranch, but that is one of the most beautiful places on the face of the earth. I think it's way back, way, way back behind the elk refuge. And it's, it's just an absolutely beautiful place. And yeah, then after that, you know, still worked kind of odd and end jobs to make ends meet. And eventually ended up at T-Town Science Schools, which I think is a lot of people's story here. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we all kind of joke, you know, it's like one degree of, of T-Town Science Schools. Like, how are you connected? Because most people are. I can't say enough about how much that shaped my trajectory then. Because I really fell in love with education and teaching people about the natural world. And then that led me to go on and get my master's degrees. And yeah, after that, I, you know, taught for a while in, uh, in a middle school and then, yeah, and then landed in wildlife advocacy. And I feel like this is really my niche and where I belong. What were you teaching in middle school? I taught seventh grade biology and eighth grade earth science, and then started an environmental science elective. And that was really fun because we got a chance to like institute a recycling program in the school. And I took the kids to like the wastewater treatment plant and things like that. So yeah, it was, it was a great experience. And I, I really do love that age of kid. I know it's a rough time in a lot of kids lives, but they're still very open to learning things and are still fascinated by things. And I think it's an important age for kids to really develop an appreciation for the natural world. Well, thank you for being a, a teacher. It's a hard job. It is literally the hardest job out there. I say enough about how grateful I am to teachers for what they do because it's a tough job. I mean, you're you're grading on the weekends, you're planning in the evenings for the next day, you're grading, you're you're putting things together, you're helping kids after school. It's it's intense and you're on when you're on. You know, you're you're there and in the classroom and you're on all day. It's it is a tough job and I am super thankful to everybody that is a teacher out there. I think Teachers are the unsung heroes. Absolutely. Of, Absolutely. Of our society. Yep. They should make a lot more money and be a lot more appreciated because they work their buns off. <laughs> they definitely uh, work their buns off for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so now you said you're in wildlife advocacy. Tell me more about that and how you transitioned yeah. into that. Yeah, you know, I, I did feel like I was having an impact with kids about teaching them about, you know, just the biology behind 
wildlife and why it's important to have both predator and prey and ecosystems. But I didn't feel like I was having like, you know, as of direct of an impact as I would have liked to have been. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, I, I took a job with another um, organization here in town and did that for a while. And, you know, really kind of felt like, oh, okay, now this is like, this is my jam. This is where I'm, <laughs> this is where I'm at home. You know, like this is what I was meant to do. And I've been with my, the organization, um, I'm the executive director at Wyoming Wildlife Advocates, and I've been there for almost five years now. And I absolutely love what I do. I, I really do love my job. It's very difficult at times. It's challenging, it's, but it's super rewarding at the same time. So I feel like one of the reasons I am on this earth is to help speak for those who don't have a voice. So what would be challenging? in in this this role yeah so wyoming is an interesting and unique state in that there's a lot of it, it's it's a wildlife paradise you know like we were talking about earlier but there's a lot of challenges and difficulties around how that wildlife is managed so you know some people think that there should be zero wolves and other people think that we, there should be wolves all over and there's you know anything in between the spectrum there's a continuum of where people think that, you know, certain animals should be or how they should be represented in the state. And there's some really kind of old myths and misconceptions that tend to really persist in the culture here. And so that is a very difficult thing is one thing I've learned is that wildlife management is not about wildlife. It's about people. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's people are where the problems come in. Like if we let nature just do its thing, it would do its thing. But when people place values or their kind of way of thinking onto that species, then, you know, that's when you start having sort of these challenges and difficulties in recovery for species and also just, uh, you know, having those species around and people disagree on it. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's volatile. I will say that. I will just say like, if you just mention the word wolves or wolf in Wyoming, you'll get a reaction from people one way or the other. Yes. A topic that has lots of opinions to it. Exactly. Yes. Everyone's got an opinion about it. And some of those opinions are based on facts. Some of them are not. Some of them are very value-based from people and how they've been raised. And you know, that's it's nobody's fault. It's just that's how we form our identities and trying to get people to see see that animal in a different light is very difficult, but not impossible either. I mean, I think that we I, Wyoming has made some strides on on existing coexisting with the species. And then there's a lot of places we have a lot of work to do still, too. How many states does the wolf now exist in? Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, about 10. So there's a population in the Great Lakes, the Northern Great Lakes. So Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan. There's a population. Well, actually, no, it'd be more than that because there's also the Mexican gray wolf that exists in Arizona and New Mexico. There's actually several packs that have formed in California, Northern California. Mm. Um, and those wolves are wolves that have migrated down from Oregon. So Washington and Oregon both have wolves, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and there's even, well, there was some wolves in Colorado, but Colorado will be reintroducing wolves as well coming up in December. 
so yeah there and then you do have the red wolf also in north carolina and unfortunately there's a very very small number of those animals left i think you know just a hundred or so or maybe even less than that once again like they're making a comeback and they are recovering but there's still a lot of this manifest destiny and kind of just this these carryovers from the westward expansion that have it's really amazing how like that has been persistent in our culture i mean most people i think if you took a census of people of how many people have actually like seen a wolf or had an interaction with a wolf, it's probably a very small amount of people, but Mm -hmm. people are so opinionated about it too, you know? So it's something that like, even if people are not directly affected by it, they still have a opinion on it. Huh? I wonder where that influence comes from. Like you you have no impact. They, the the animal has no impact on you whatsoever in any direction. Good, bad, medium. It's somewhat of like, you know, a carryover from these, you know, Little Red Riding Hood and and these myths and stories that came out of Central Europe and, you know, Eastern Europe and Western Europe as and as settlers came across and then encountered because most of the wolves were killed off, you know, in Europe before settlers came over to the United States or to North America. And so, you know, then they get here and it's like, okay, here's this animal that we eradicated, you know, over where we came from, where our ancestors are from we need to do the same thing here because we have to protect our livestock and we have to protect, you know, the way that we live. And so it's like, it's really a deep seated, like cultural influence that the wolf has been negatively portrayed so long in our culture. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, at least in, in like Anglo-Saxon or, or, um, Eastern European culture. And it's really seems to be like part of our psyche. It's, it's fascinating to me. And I kind of like wish at times that I had studied psychology because, I really am intrigued to know, like, why do people feel the way they feel or why do the people have the opinions that they do? And, you know, a lot of that just comes from values that have been passed down from their families. And when you have something like a wolf, it's very difficult to sway people's emotions about it because people feel 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 so strongly. And unfortunately, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions about them as well that have been perpetuated. And it's going to take a long time for those to get, you know, like cleared up i guess or to have a different perspective in our society around that now for the organization that you are part of what are some of the programs that you guys offer that you guys are doing yeah so we spend a lot of time you know letting the public know when there's chances for comment opportunities on wildlife management policy or regulations we do litigate sometimes uh sometimes that is the only thing when especially when agencies are kind of ignoring their own mandates or are not doing things in the manner they should be uh, by law. Sometimes, you know, we have to apply that pressure in order to get something to happen or something to change. And we've been successful on several lawsuits, mainly involving feed grounds in Wyoming. And we also, you know, we spend a lot of time educating. So we offer, we print out usually around five to 7,000 of these wildlife guides, you know, people may have seen them. I think they're at the airport, they're at the Chamber of Commerce, their visitor center. I try to distribute them throughout the community. Just kind of informs people about not only what species we have here and a little bit of their natural history, but also some of the conservation challenges they're think, you know, they're facing because there's a lot of things that are people just don't see on the surface. Of, you know, you kind of like come here and you're like, "Oh, look at all this wildlife and everything looks really healthy," but if you scratch a little deeper, you know, you see that there's, there are issues and challenges. And then uh, we also run a program called Jackson Hole Bear Solutions, which we started 
in 2022, uh, just around trying to get more resources on the ground to help reduce conflicts between humans and bears. I mean, other communities like Tahoe and Durango and up in British Columbia, you know, Whistler area and stuff are doing a phenomenal job at helping prevent human bear conflicts. And I think Jackson maybe didn't know that we had as big of a problem with it as we do until 399 and her four cubs came through town. I think that was a real catalyst for people to realize like, okay, we, we do have grizzly bears that can come into town and yeah, we might want to get things cleaned up here. So we offer free or reduced cost uh, resources to people. We just wanted to remove the barrier of, you know, cost being an issue for people to be able to be a part of taking, you know, like taking responsibility for reducing human bear conflicts and coexisting with bears on the landscape. It's, it can be done. And we're, we're doing some things right, but we also have some work, you know, still ahead of us too. And what are those for your reduced options that you're offering to people to help reduce their bear conflict? Yeah, uh, bear resistant trash cans are the number one thing. Uh, that's something that the county last year mandated that everybody in the county have one. And the town also um, recently, it just went into effect April 1st, that there are conflict zones now that have to be, um, you have to have a bear resistant trash can in those areas. So making sure that those get out on the ground and people have access to those, because a lot of people like don't even know where to get one or, you know, or they have a Subaru and they can't even get it to their house. So we deliver and we bring those resources to people. Also electric fencing. We've given out electric fencing, both chargers and the fencing itself to help protect chickens and other livestock. We've given out bear proof trash cans also to like store livestock feed because that's another kind of big problem area for bears is uh, just mm -hmm. like grains and stuff like that. And yeah, then we also were working on dumpsters. So we have a, a program where we have 18 dumpster lids that will be delivered hopefully soon uh, that will be retrofitted onto dumpsters that are already existing because that's a much cheaper option, um, especially for the trash haulers. Uh, and so they don't have to purchase brand new dumpsters. It basically, it's like a lid that just gets welded on. And then that is that makes that trash inaccessible to bears. Mm -hmm. And for people to have a, a grasp as far as interactions with with bears here in the community, do you have an idea of what those a number of interactions that human bear interactions happen each year? Yeah, it kind of depends. It's, you know, it varies based on what is going on in the natural world. So in a year like this, where we've had a wet spring, and there's obviously going to be a good berry crop, and, you know, plenty of natural forage, we tend to see lower rates of conflicts due to the fact that, you know, bears are not feeling the need to come into town to look for food. When we have like drier years that we know, we don't, you know, the berry crop might have failed or there just isn't as much vegetation out there. Then that then we see, you know, tend to see an uptick in human bear conflicts in those years. It can be significant. Like one year there were 11 bears that were killed just in the Snow King area. Those were all black bears. Uh, that has been a chronically difficult area to secure things. And that's one of the areas we really focused on is to try and get as many cans out there as possible. And then, you know, in 2021, there were six grizzly bears that year that were killed due to conflicts. And, you know, the the thing about it is, it's like, those are completely preventable. It's a completely preventable situation. And I think, you know, probably at one time or another, people have seen 
a trash can overturned by a bear. Mostly in town, it's, you know, black bears. In the county, it could be black or grizzly bears. And so, you know, I think it's, it's people are just, they're more aware of it now that there's, you know, there's an opportunity for bears to be in town. And like, yeah, I should probably do something. I mean, not only is it, a, is it an issue for the bear, it's also an issue for people. I mean, nobody really wants mm. five grizzly bears in their backyard. <laughs> it's not really the best situation for the for people or the bear. So, yeah, you know, keeping bears out in, of town and looking for natural foods is really what we want to promote and um, make sure that, you know, they're just not having access to any of those attractions. When you, you just said that one year there were 11 black bears killed due to human interaction around the Snoking area. Yeah. I had no idea. And most people don't. It kind of like flies under the radar a little bit. You know, it's almost become, I think, it's like, well, it's just one of those things that happens, you know, <laughs> or and, and there are, you know, there's like vacation homes up there. And so there's probably people coming into town that aren't aware that bears are right there. Yeah. You know, it's it is something that is not as prevalent as, you know, you, it's not like out in the community as much as you would think it would be. And and I think other other communities, I don't know if it's the fact that like they've had the problems for longer and that's why they have things secured or if they just took a more proactive approach. I don't know what it is about the fact that like Jackson is, we just, we are kind of far behind other communities that have bears and it should be something that like, no matter where you go, you're seeing something about, you know, be bear aware or be, be bear safe or, you know, be bear smart to try and like secure your attractants and make sure that your trash is locked up. And, and that's really one of the goals of, of our program is to really make it visible to people so that, it's just always on the minds and it's just second nature. Kristen, fascinating information. I, I appreciate this. We need to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors. And then we're going to come right back and, and talk more about how we can do be better at educating people. Teton County Solid Wastes and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,662 tons of food waste are disposed of in the trash in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve the county's goal to reduce, aiming for zero waste. For more information on Teton County, ISWR's residential and commercial food waste programs, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle. Change begins with each of us, one day at a time. Kristen, welcome back. Thank you. And we're talking about the importance of educating people of how to be bear aware, but, you know, bear smart as well. And and there's more that your organization does, uh, you know, Wyoming Wildlife Advocates. But to know that historically there was one period where there were 11 bears that had to be put down because of human interaction, that means we as humans can be better about what we do and how we think about what our actions are to if the bear comes into what we might call our area but when you think about it it's it's their area we're living in their habitat mm -hmm. is what it is we just happen to cut down the trees and pave the roads and build houses other than securing trash or what's a great way for people to find out if they should be taking steps to be 
more proactive uh, on the on the bear education. I mean, if you're a resident of Jackson or Teton County, you have to be aware that bears are could be in your neighborhood. I mean, very likely have been at one time and could continue to be. I mean, that's just where we live. We, you know, 3% of Teton County is public our private land and 97% is public land. So you're right. Like we live in their habitat and we live very closely with these animals and other communities have shown that it actually can be done. Like bears, I think there's, you know, the stigma around bears that they're, they're aggressive and, you know, they're going to be mean no matter what. And I mean, that just isn't true. I mean, as we've seen with 399, I mean, she's a, she's a really incredible bear. She's not, I wouldn't say she's the norm. She is definitely her own, her own thing, her own individual and is an incredible mother. But I think she really, she kind of showed us last year of what, or the year before, of what it can look like for a community to coexist with bears. What happens if, you know, I think one thing that's special about her is kind of the lethal option is off the table because nobody wants to be you know no one wants to be the one that's going to have to kill 399 for getting into trash or a beehive or whatever and she's really given us like this opportunity to see how people and bears can live together and you know where are the problem spots can we fix those and then you know let bears be bears and go back to the wild and you know find their own food i mean it's not like once she gets a taste of you know honey out of a beehive that she's never going to eat wild foods again. That's just not true. So bears are incredibly resilient. They are smart, but we as humans, and you know, here's the thing is like bears are going to do what bears are going to do. What do they do? They, they look for food. They try to raise their young and they survive. We know bears are going to do that. So it's not, the onus is on us to do things differently so that bears can continue to do what they're doing. And we can it basically like coexistence is that both species are meeting their needs in a same, you know, the same area and without conflicts occurring. And yeah, I think everybody needs to just be a little bit more aware of the fact that you know, if you have a bird feeder out in the summer, that's something that could bring a bear to your yard. If you have trash that's unsecured, that's something that a bear could want to come to your house for. And what we really want to do is just keep bears moving. I mean, you know, we're not going to keep bears out of town altogether, but if they don't have a reason to stop at your property, then they'll keep moving on and looking for other things. And that's really why bear resistant trash cans work is because, you know, a bear tries to get into one. It fails. It can't get in there. It moves on to the next one. Can't get into that one. Eventually the bear's like, okay, this isn't a food source. This isn't worth my time because, you know, it's all, it's all about calorie expenditure versus calorie intake for them. And if yeah, if a food source is not easily or readily available, they're going to move on to the next thing. And that's really what we want to do is we want to keep bears looking for wild food and keep them out of our, you know, human provided food. It's not healthy for the bears either, you know, to be eating trash. I mean, some of it's probably not very healthy for us either. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we like it. What about where the moose population is right now and how we can be better at interacting with moose and ensuring that they have the right habitats to thrive. Yeah, you know, it's moose are an interesting species because they tend to live especially in the winter time where we live and you know, they want to be in the river bottoms, they want to be where the snow amounts are lower. So town is a really good place for them to be 
at that time. And that does set up a situation of conflicts. And, you know, now they're experiencing, I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of species in our area that are starting to experience impacts from climate change. And, uh, you know, that's a really difficult thing because that's something that's bigger than Jackson. That's, I mean, we can take our steps here certainly to reduce the impact of climate change. But every community has to do that. And, you know, we have to do that as a human society as a whole. And so, yeah, it's that's a difficult thing because winter, winter ticks are getting much worse because they're not dying off in the winter like they used to. And moose are being, you know, hit pretty hard by that. They also have a couple diseases that they can get. And then, you know, the really... The sad thing is that they're still getting hit on the road. I mean, luckily, there are efforts to, you know, build some wildlife crossings and we put the, you know, the underpasses in down there on South 89 and that has helped. But it's also people just need to slow down. The amount of people I see speeding every day and just kind of rushing about their business is shocking. And I'm I'm the crazy person that you'll see out there stopping traffic so that a duck family can get across the Mm -hmm. (laughs) um you know because i it's just like if we if we can't stop 30 seconds of our day to allow this animal to survive like what what are we doing you know like what is it really cute those little ducks (laughs) they they do need to be able to walk across the road you see that mom (laughs) with like six ducks following behind her it's cute exactly i know and so you know i think people just need to be aware that like you live in a special place when you live in Jackson. It's not like any other place that you'll live. It's Mm -hmm. wildlife is part of your day, whether you like it or not. And, you know, I think people are just really unaware of that and don't really realize how, how tenuous life can be for some of these animals. I mean, a moose in March when it's at the very end of its fat reserves and, you know, is the spring green up hasn't happened yet and it gets chased by a dog or something. I mean, that could be the death of that moose because it could have just burned off, you know, the amount of calories it was going to use for several days and in, in 10 minutes. So, yeah, it's it's something that just people need to be aware, more aware of. in Jackson is that we are here with other species and that's what makes this place special. And we want to keep that. Yeah. Don't let your do- dogs go chase the animals mm-hmm. at any time. But definitely in the springtime is that really crucial crucial time for, for sure that. and do you guys help get that message out to to people more yeah i mean we try to you know i think there's been some really good efforts here in the county and community to try and you know like don't poach the powder and try mm-hmm. to keep people aware of the fact that wildlife are trying to survive uh and are having a tough time of it sometimes and yeah you know i think it's it's just a it's got to be a constant drumbeat of like this is where we live. There are wildlife here and you have differently because we do have wildlife here. No, very true. Well, Kristen, if people wanted to reach out and connect with you to learn more about the Wyoming Wildlife Advocates and some of the programs or even figure out how you could help with some bear mitigation and how can they do that? Yeah, uh, easiest way is to visit us on on the World Wide Web at uh, wyomingwildlifeadvocates.org. Or you can also go to wyowild.org. And yeah, just drop us a line, send me an email. I, you know, the email comes to me about the info account. So either that or my, my cell phone is listed on our website as well. People are welcome to call me anytime. I'm always willing to help with an animal in need or uh, to help people find better ways to live live alongside wildlife here 
That's awesome. Our community has some phenomenal resources as far as to ensure that we are being wise about how we interact with the wildlife here. And yours is one of those. And, and I'm very grateful and appreciative for what you guys are doing. Thank you. Well, we're happy to do it. And it's really, like I said, I, it is my purpose in life. So I, I can't imagine doing anything else. It's a difficult job sometimes, but I really do love it. And I think that um, I feel very lucky to be in this place at this time, uh, working on some of these issues. Well, I appreciate it as well. Thank you, Kristen. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. To learn more about Kristen and Wyoming wildlife advocates, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com episode number 249. Thank you, Michael, for keeping this podcast going through the marketing and the editing and production. Folks, if you want to do a podcast, reach out to Michael. He can help you out. And thank you to my wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William. I appreciate you all listening. All of you fans who listen, share this podcast with your friends and families or somebody that you haven't connected with in a while. I do appreciate you sharing your time with me today. And cheers till next week for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.